Hello, 22 Goals listeners. If you're enjoying our show, you might also like some of The Ringer's other narrative podcasts, like Icons Club. That's a history of the NBA told through the voices of legendary players. That Michael Jordan sure gives a great interview. Or maybe you'd like one of our culture narrative shows like Gene and Roger, which is about legendary movie critics Siskel and Ebert. Or you could listen to Gamblers, a show about people who make money off the most surprising stuff. Did you know you can gamble on chess? Also legendary, if you ask me. We like legendary stuff here at The Ringer, and we like you. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So I'm sitting there in the driver's seat of my car, looking out the open window down the barrel of the gun that this cop is pointing in my face. Actually, I'm not so much looking down the barrel of the gun as I am looking into the beam of the flashlight that the cop is also pointing in my face. I'm looking at, I am semi-blinded by the flashlight, but the gun, it's there. I am aware of the gun. This is a night in 1996, I'm in my first year of college, it's winter break, I'm back in my hometown. My girlfriend broke up with me last night. I am having a complicated week. This is about soccer, I promise, but I should say here, in a record scratch freeze frame sort of way, that unlike many of the many thousands of Americans who have been confronted with deadly force during encounters with the police, I did something to provoke this situation. I'll tell you what I did. So it started when I got pulled over. I'm doing like 47 in a 25. Not great. Also, not necessarily a Bonnie and Clyde scenario. You wouldn't think Clyde's girlfriend didn't dump him. Anyway, I pulled over to the side of the road and it took a really long time. I mean, a weirdly long time for the cop to get out of his car and come up to me. I'm just sitting there, me and my friend Olivia. We're waiting. We were just out getting pizza because I was sad. We're sitting there watching the lights flash in the rearview mirror for what feels like 45 minutes. And dumbass 19-year-old me has the dumbass 19-year-old idea that maybe this is taking so long because I pulled over in the wrong place. Maybe he's not getting out because he wants me to move. I learn later. (laughs) 
I learn later that the real reason he's not getting out is that a car matching the description of my car has been reported stolen somewhere in the area, and he's talking to the station in case he's dealing with an international auto thief who specializes in base model Dodge Neons, but I don't know that yet. Which means that when I decide to be helpful, dumbass, and scooch the car ever so slightly forward— the officer thinks I am trying to make a break for it. The situation has escalated, completely unbeknownst to myself. I am making history's tiniest getaway attempt. I drive approximately 27 feet at a speed of exactly three miles per hour. The cop throws his sirens back on and screams after me, also going three miles an hour. If you watched this on fast forward, it would look like a normal speed car chase. Cue the unholstering of a service weapon. Cue flashlight beam in my face. I'm looking at the gun, but unlike the many, many Americans who have good reason to see encounters with the police as extremely and inherently dangerous, I lack the life experience to be afraid. I am a middle-class, teenage, white boy in a small town in Oklahoma, and I am viewing this situation through a filter of totally unearned privilege thick enough to blot out the moon. It never occurs to me that I should even be anxious. What I am, instead of scared, is pissed off. I am being inconvenienced. I'm somewhere I've never been before, on the wrong side of the line, on the outside looking in. And I would like to speak to a manager. The cop makes me get out of the car. He pats me down. He holsters his revolver. That's progress. He shines his flashlight through the window at Olivia. She goes, hi. It is beginning to dawn on Officer McBain here that he has perhaps not made the bust of the century. But if you want to be a hero, you have to try. So he shines his flashlight in on the plastic cups of Dr. Pepper we took from the pizza joint. He says, what are we drinking tonight, kids? Anything we shouldn't? As a matter of fact, yes, we should not be drinking Dr. Pepper. It's loaded with sugar and artificial flavors. But I don't say that to the cop. He makes me hand him my cup. And this is the moment I remember more vividly than any of the rest of it. I remember this moment more vividly than the part where I had a gun in my face. He sniffs the cup of Dr. Pepper. He deeply inhales. You know in a cartoon where, like, Pepe Le Pew sniffs a flower, like he's drawing the whole soul of the flower up into his nostrils and uploading it into his brain? The cop does that with my fountain beverage. If there is alcohol in this Dr. Pepper, he is going to find it by sheer force of nose. It's not pretty. He has a mustache. I am humiliated by the way my Dr. Pepper is being smelled. What I want is to express my anger and sense of aggrieved 
soda justice with a look. I can't say anything, so I want to give this man a stare that will puncture his soul and make him feel two inches tall. I want to look at this police officer, in other words, the way Zinedine Zidane looks at everything. I told you it was about soccer. I'm Brian Phillips, by the way, not in prison somehow. The end of that story is I got a regular ticket. Welcome to 22 Goals, the story of the World Cup. We're talking today about Zinedine Zidane, the great French midfielder, World Cup champion, Ballon d'Or winner, and just pulverizing gazer, like easily the most dominant starer at things since Malcolm McDowell on the Clockwork Orange poster. What is it like, the Zidane stare? Well, it's piercing. It's unimpressed. It's the stare that would happen if Darth Maul could be fused at a molecular level with Joan Didion in the Corvette photo. It features hard, level eyes and angular eyebrows, commanding eyebrows, eyebrows you'd follow through the gates of hell. You'd be like, wow, I can't believe I followed those eyebrows into hell. And then you'd be like, no, actually, I can believe it. It was the correct response. There are three inalterable truths of existence. Truth number one, no cardboard box in the United States of America has ever contained anything liquid, fragile, hazardous, or perishable. Truth number two, in a fight between two evenly matched opponents, the less angry person always wins. Truth number three, When Zinedine Zidane's eyebrows call you, you obey. We are talking today about the last goal Zidane ever scored in the last match Zidane ever played in, the 2006 World Cup Final, France versus Italy. Not his first rodeo World Cup Final-wise. Eight years earlier, he played, though that's an insufficient word for it, in the 1998 World Cup final against Brazil. July 1998, France revels in an explosion of national pride. More than a million people flocked to the Champs-Élysées to salute a multiracial team that had lifted football's biggest trophy and to honor Zinedine Zidane, scorer of two goals in the World Cup final. And after France brought home the cup, his face, His gaze was projected onto the Arc de Triomphe with lasers, super gargantuan Zidane stare just blaring out at Paris. And it is a miracle to me that all the drivers on the Champs-Élysées didn't take one look and go plowing through the front window of Louis Vuitton, just unnecessarily monogrammed carnage everywhere. Here's something Zidane once said about his childhood. He said, We were not a family of words. Everything passed through the look. Now, we live in a time, and Zidane played during a time, when athletes are expected to tell us what they mean. Words are a big part of the job. 
words in a press conference, words in an Instagram caption, words in a notes app apology for the time they drove past a hot dog stand in a rented Lexus and threw fireworks at it. Swedish striker Zlatan Ibrahimovic actually did that, by the way. Didn't apologize for it. We expect athletes to explain their motivations. We want to know what goes on inside their heads. Part of the power of the Zidane gaze in that light is that it's unreadable. His whole career, people have been trying to interpret him, but Zidane doesn't want to be interpreted. After 1998, reporters would ask him, what's your message? And he would say, I have no message. He looks at you like he doesn't owe you an explanation. He plays like he doesn't owe you an explanation. And like maybe he's not interested in yours. There is a question hanging over this episode like a face beamed onto a national monument. The question is, who decides what an athlete means? Do we decide? Does the athlete decide? Who's in charge of defining the symbolism concentrated in an actual living person? And what happens if we make someone an icon who never asked to be one? So yes, it would have been nice to have the Zidane stare to call on during my Dr. Pepper's run-in with the law, but it's also the power of that look, the power of what passed through that look, that makes Zidane's final goal one of my all-time favorites. 2006 World Cup Final. Yes, that is the match in which Zidane was infamously shown a red card in the final act of his career for headbutting Marco Materazzi. We're going to talk about that too. Going to be a long one. This is not a soccer podcast. This is an eyeball potency analyzer. Let's talk about what Zinedine Zidane sees. To understand the story of Zinedine Zidane, including the ways in which you might not be able to understand it, you have to know the story of Malika and Smail, his mom and dad. They grew up in the middle of the 20th century in a Kabyle village in northern Algeria, a village in the mountains. I know about this because Smail wrote a book about it, which came out in 2017. It's called Sur le Chemin de Pierre, which means On Stone Roads. It is so good. I highly recommend tracking this book down if you have any interest in Zidane's story. The whole last chapter is made up of poems Smile has written over the years. It hasn't been translated into English, but you can buy the French ebook. This is what I did because I'm a rube who only knows one language and run it through Google Translate. Inalterable Truth of Existence number four, you should always read The Parent's Memoir. Smail Zidane was born in 1935. He grew up on a hard scrabble farm. The soil was bad, it was arid. They were hungry a lot of the time. But Smail remembered that sometimes before he went to sleep, his mother would come and put a drop of honey under his tongue. Every Tuesday, Smail and his dad would load two baskets of fruit onto the donkey and travel down a narrow, winding road on the edge of the ravine to the market town, where they'd sell their wares from a stall. Algeria at that point in the 1940s and 50s was still a French colony. 
At home, Smile's family was loving, but he describes the atmosphere as one of gravity and seriousness. Language was for practical information. There were, quote, no displays of feeling and few laughs. Hard work mattered more than anything. You didn't talk, you didn't emote, you acted. Eking out a living in the mountains was hard enough that you didn't waste time or energy on words. Literally my exact philosophy as the host of a podcast, which is just me talking, there was more opportunity, people said, in France. And Smail wanted to make money for his family. So as soon as he was old enough, he got on a boat bound for Europe. 1953, he was 18 years old. He'd never been on a boat before. His parents saved up their money before he left and got him a new pair of sneakers. Life in Paris was hard. He worked on a construction site, and for a whole year, he slept at the site. He slept outdoors so that he could send all his money home. He slept outdoors during the coldest winter anyone could remember in France. More years went by. Those years were just a little less hard. In the early 1960s, not long after Algeria won its independence from France, he finally saved up enough to take a visit home. On his way to Algeria, he stopped in Marseille, a port city in the south of France. While he was there, he bumped into a young woman from his village who had come to France with her parents. That's Malika. They looked at each other from across a room, and he decided not to get on the boat. Smail and Malika got married. They stayed in Marseille. Now, within Marseille, one of the most infamous neighborhoods is called La Castellan. It's populated mostly by North African immigrants. Poverty and crime are high. Footnote one, see colonialism. Smail and Malika settle there in La Castellan. They have four children. Smail works in a warehouse for the casino convenience store chain. He also works as a night watchman. He works all the time. In 1972, Smail and Malika have their fifth and last child, a boy. They name him Zinedine, though they never call him that. At home and in the neighborhood, he goes by his middle name, Yazid. So, among the first things Yazid sees as a boy is life in La Castellan. It's a crowded neighborhood, center of drug smuggling, human trafficking, and gang violence. It's also a community with its own grocery stores and its own town square and its own ways of doing things. Yazid sees this little world. He sees its separation from the rest of the city, from the rest of France. Smail and Malika instill into their children the principle that they have to look out for each other. The rule is, when you go outside, you go together, and you look out for the sibling smaller than you. The Zidans had an apartment in a big housing project. The younger kids wore the older kids' hand-me-down clothes. At the end of the month, the casino company where Smail worked let workers buy expired food at a steep discount. And because of this, they had enough to eat. Still, it's fair to say that Le Castellan is not a simple place to live. 
Everywhere he looks, Yazid sees visible manifestations of the invisible questions haunting post-colonial France. Are people like him, immigrants and the children of immigrants, French or not French? Are they inside French society? Are they outside it? Liberty, equality, fraternity. Are you equal in Le Castellan? Are you part of the family? Which side of the line are you on? Kids of all ages play soccer in the neighborhood, on the street, in the gravel of the Place de la Tartane. Yazid sees that, too. The games are rough. You have to learn how to protect yourself. Yazid is good at it. Really good at it. Soon he's obsessed. A scout sees him play, and he leaves as a teenager to join the youth academy at A.S. Khan. Khan, as in the film festival. His parents come to visit him on weekends. His sister, Lila, gives him a Walkman and a CD of her favorite singer, Jean-Jacques Goldman. And at night, he listens to it on repeat to fight off homesickness. He's talented, but he soon picks up a reputation for more than talent. He picks up a reputation for lashing out at anyone who trash talks his family, his race, or his neighborhood. He doesn't talk back. Life is not about words. He acts. He gets into fights. His coaches put him on cleaning duty as a punishment. They tell him to channel his anger into his game. He makes his professional debut for Khan at the age of 16 in 1989. Three years later, as a seasoned veteran in his late teens, he moves to Bordeaux, where he starts to turn heads with the merciless intelligence and technical proficiency of his game. He wins his first cap for France in 1994 at the age of 22. He comes on as a second-half substitute against the Czech Republic and promptly scores two goals. Now, he has the nation's attention. When the nation looks at him, it sees a playmaker whose game is somehow both furious and clinical. He's a midfielder who sees the whole pitch at once. But above all, he's a player who seems at every moment to be turning destruction into precision, into grace. He seems to make vengeance a kind of ballet. In a fight between two evenly matched opponents, the less angry person always wins. But being less angry doesn't mean being less motivated by anger. It means not letting anger control you. It means keeping your cool, keeping your gaze level, so that you can visit a degree of cold-eyed destruction on your adversary that rage alone would never let you achieve. Here is Zinedine Zidane, and he's gone and scored! Bonanno failed to deal with it. Zinedine Zidane with the breakthrough. To watch Zidane play this way is every bit as electrifying as it sounds. Look at his most famous move, the Marseille turn, the pirouette. You know the double drag back thing where he does a 360-degree spin around the ball and somehow ends up on the far side of the defender? Looks impossible when you see it. It's a move that requires you to pass the ball backward to yourself twice with the back of your heel while spinning forward. What? Which is why most players don't even attempt it. The other most famous star to utilize it was Diego Maradona. That's the level of technique we're talking about. 
It is also one of the most uncompromising and direct ways to break down a defender. I mean, it's just, it's pitiless. That's what the nation sees when the nation looks at him. What does he see when he looks at the nation? He wins the Player of the Year Award in League One in 1996. He sees that in France, he's no longer Yazid. Among fans, he acquires an ultra-French nickname. He becomes Zizou. Control de Solari ahora, con Zizou. He sees that being a famous footballer moves you to the other side of the line as if you'd spun right over it. In Le Castellan, you were on the outside looking in. Now, apparently, you're on the inside. But are you really? Can you ever be? By the mid-90s, he's a star. He transfers to the Italian powerhouse Juventus. At the European Championships in 1996, a controversy breaks out in France that throws doubt again on the question of who's inside and who's outside. The French team has a number of players, including many of its best players, including Zidane himself, whose families come from France's former colonies. One of these players, the defensive midfielder Christian Carambeu, was born in the French-controlled archipelago of New Caledonia, east of Australia. Carambeu has chosen not to sing the French national anthem before games. You know, La Marseillaise, I don't want to go off on a whole tangent about this, but I'll tell you why Christian Carambeu didn't like to sing that song. In 1931, there was a big exhibition in Paris called the Colonial Exhibition, treasures and exotic rarities from France's colonial possessions. One of the exhibits was a zoo-style display where, quote, cannibals were put on view for the French public. 1931. Maybe that seems like a long time ago. Let's put it in perspective. Mickey Mouse existed in 1931. You could go to the store and buy a Snickers bar in 1931. You could also go to Paris and watch Black people being forced to eat raw meat and perform lewd dances for white people who bought tickets. One of these, quote, cannibals was Christian Carambeu's great-grandfather. That is a pretty good reason not to sing the national anthem. Luckily, protests involving sports and national anthems never get blown out of proportion. Everyone in France respects Carambeu's choice and uses it as an opportunity to reflect on the long history of I am kidding. It's a huge controversy. Far right-wing French politician Jean-Marie Le Pen launches a transparently racist attack on what he calls the fake Frenchmen and foreign players on the France team. He says the French team is made up of players who aren't truly French. Now the French team is the center of a debate about national identity. What does it mean to represent a nation? What does France mean? Who does it belong to? Who gets to belong to it? There's a really good book. It's called Soccer Empire by the historian Laurent Dubois that explores the legacy of French colonialism through the lens of the national team. 
Dubois quotes the eloquent and outspoken black French midfielder Lilian Taram, who was born in Guadeloupe, who responded to Lapin's critique this way. When you're intelligent, Taram said, you don't respond to these kinds of statements. Indeed, when you're intelligent, you don't make these kinds of statements. Zidane, by contrast, kept quiet. He kept quiet during the anthem, said he sang it inwardly and didn't need other people to see it. He kept quiet about politics, kept quiet about race, except to say unwaveringly that he was proud of his Algerian roots. He kept quiet about most things because life isn't about talking. Life is about acting. France lost agonizingly in the semifinals of Euro 96 on penalties against the Czech Republic, Zidane made his. Inalterable truth of existence number five, social questions in sports never get resolved in semifinals. So the team remained under that cloud of invisible questions. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things but at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. In 1998, France hosts the World Cup. The national team is in a wildly unfair position. How can you unite your home country while a portion of your fan base is insisting it isn't your home? Here's a story I didn't know until recently. On the day of the final, France versus Brazil, 
Zidane's father didn't watch the game. He never watched his son's games live, too nervous. Big crowd comes over to the house. Zidane has bought his parents a little place outside Marseille with a big garden where Smile loves to putter around. Malika is into tinkering with mechanical objects. So whenever anything electrical in the house breaks, she takes it apart and fixes it. Smail goes out and sits in the garden with his infant grandson, Yazid's new son, and he holds the sleeping baby. He looks at his plants. He breathes in the scent of his flowers. He thinks, I must be the only person on the block not watching the game. Periodically, a burst of cheering comes from the house and from the neighboring houses, and he thinks, well, maybe Yazid has scored a goal. Cheering once cheering twice, cheering three times. France destroys Brazil, 3-0. Zidane, of course, scores the first two of those three goals. And that's how Smile experiences it, at home. After years of waiting and wondering, now tears of pure joy. And the quiet man who's led them to this triumph moves amongst his charges many of whom are flat out on the ground in tears, scarcely able to take in what they've just achieved. Cue crowds pouring out onto the streets of Paris. Cue days of celebrations. Cue Zidane's face staring down from the Arc de Triomphe. Cue hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, chanting Zizou for president. His father says dryly in his memoir, and by the magic of sport, we go from the joy of having won to the happiness of being French. Before 1998, Zidane is a star. After it, he's an icon. Do you ever think about that difference, the difference between a famous person and an icon? Or maybe you're sick of that word icon. I don't think I'm going to blow anybody's mind here if I say that the word icon is a tiny bit catastrophically overused in today's online caption ecosystem. I mean, everything's iconic now. Your sandwich is iconic. Any celebrity making literally any facial expression is iconic. If the crying Jordan meme could draft a mid-90s NBA all-star team of overexposed internet phraseology, the word iconic would be, like, Joe Dumars, I want to say. You know what? Let's do this. I just spent 20 minutes working this out for my job. 1996 NBA all-star team. Eastern Conference starting lineup. Anthony Hardaway, Orlando Magic. Don't at me. Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls. I'm not crying, you're crying, obviously. Grant Hill, Detroit Pistons. And I'm here for it. Scottie Pippen, Chicago Bulls. I don't know who needs to hear this. Shaquille O'Neal, Orlando Magic. The word this written as a one-word sentence. Western Conference, Clyde Drexler, Houston Rockets, said no one ever. Jason Kidd, Dallas Mavericks, 
one does not simply walk into Mordor. Charles Barkley, Phoenix Suns, large adult son, writes itself. Sean Kemp, Seattle Supersonics, the word screaming, written as a one-word sentence. Hakeem Olajuwon, Houston Rockets. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Joe Dumars didn't make the All-Star team in 96, but don't feel bad for him. He was there in 97. A truly iconic comeback. Anyway, I still think the distinction between iconic and famous can be useful, especially when it comes to a player like Zidane. Here's how I think about the difference. A famous person is someone lots of different people have heard of. An icon is someone lots of different things are about. Icons are like emotional filters for the eras in which they live. Events pass through them like light through stained glass, and so they end up meaning things or coloring the meanings of things that seem on the surface to have nothing to do with them. Harrison Ford is a famous person, quite possibly one of the most famous people who ever lived, but the only things that are about Harrison Ford are the things that are about Harrison Ford. The fall of the Berlin Wall was not about Harrison Ford. Now think about Madonna. Madonna is an icon. The fall of the Berlin Wall was about Madonna. Obviously not directly, not in a way you can logically articulate, but very clearly. The meaning of the wall coming down was shaped by the range of possibilities, the range of possible thoughts and feelings that she crystallized for the culture. Cristiano Ronaldo, to go back to soccer, is probably the most famous human being on Earth. But Zinedine Zidane is an icon. The 98 World Cup made him an icon for an era during which the West's relationship to Islam was in crisis— and the West's relationship to immigration was in crisis, and so was soccer's relationship to world politics, and so was soccer's relationship to global finance. Zidane, incidentally, became the most expensive player ever, the Galactico of Galacticos, when he moved to Real Madrid in 2001. If you followed the sport, then how you felt about the world, how you understood the world, was colored by what you knew about Zidane and by what you saw him do. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. The point here is that Zidane means that much to people. And that degree of meaning, of meaningfulness, can be its own sort of prison, especially for someone who's not a talker, someone who prefers to communicate through actions rather than words. Because when you're an icon, the meaning of your own actions is out of your hands. It's not up to you. I have no message, Zidane insisted after 1998, but an entire generation of young immigrants to France became known as Generation Zidane. Far-right politicians continued to spread lies about him and his family. When you're an icon, you don't set the message, you are the message. More precisely, you're the frame through which the message is understood. How do you live from day to day when everything you do is bigger than your reasons for doing it? Bigger, in some way, than you are. Very successfully, it turns out, if you're Zinedine Zidane, he wins 
everything. The Ballon d'Or in 1998, the FIFA World Player of the Year Award in 98, and in 2000, and in 2003. The Scudetto, twice with Juventus. La Liga with Real Madrid. At Euro 2000, he scores the winning penalty in the semifinal against Portugal. France goes on to win the final against Italy, its second consecutive major international championship. In 2002, he scores the winning goal in the Champions League final, and oh my good lord, if you have not seen that goal, go find a text window connected to the internet and type in Zidane volley as fast as your fingers will carry you. It's a left-footed volley from the edge of the area, but calling it that is like defining Captain Picard as a tea drinker. There's a lot more going on. If it had happened during the World Cup, we might be doing 22 episodes on that one goal. There's a YouTube video that sets it to the aria Nessun Dorma from Puccini's Turandot. It's been watched about five million times, and four million of those are me, conservative guests. Solari. That's a good ball for Roberto Carlos. Hooked into the penalty area towards Zidane! For all his success, Zidane retains a tendency to lash out under pressure. 14 red cards in his career. That's more than Roy Keane got for Manchester United. In 2006, he's the focus of a soccer documentary called Zidane, A 21st Century Portrait. Great soccer movie directed by Douglas Gordon and Philippe Pereno. A film that follows him through a single match, Madrid versus Villarreal, in real time. 17 cameras trained on him. At halftime, the filmmakers show a montage of world news on the day of the match. We see a car bomb going off in Iraq and a little boy running from the flames wearing a Zidane shirt. At the end of the movie, a scuffle breaks out and Zidane gets sent off for fighting. Which side of the line are you on? Eight years of contentious, relentlessly brilliant, unreasonably high-stakes soccer between 1998 and 2006. In 2004, he retires from international soccer, but in 2005, he unretires after a mysterious voice speaks to him in the dead of night and tells him to return to the French team. It's bigger than this dimension. That is the gargantuan machinery of meaning that lumbers into motion when the 2006 World Cup kicks off in Germany. It's political, it's aesthetic, it's cultural, it's spiritual. Quarterfinals, France versus Brazil. On the pitch, Zidane, Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira, Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, and Kaká. My goodness, Zidane plays one of the best individual matches I think I have ever seen, including setting up Thierry Henry's winning goal. He's up there, so is Churam, so will be Gallas. Danger now, here is a big, big chance. France have the lead, Thierry Henry. The stoop for the glory. France wins 1-0. 
Semifinals, France versus Portugal. Zidane scores the winning penalty. Puts France in the final again. He's already announced he's retiring after the tournament. The final against Italy will be his last match because the stakes aren't high enough already. Berlin, the Olympic Stadium, July 9th, 2006. Before the match, Shakira and Wyclef Jean come out to perform their hit, Hips Don't Lie. The entire point of dribbling in soccer is that hips lie all the time. I'm stating facts. 69,000 people in attendance. One of them is the acclaimed Belgian novelist Jean-Philippe Toussaint, who will later write a celebrated lyrical essay called Zidane's Melancholy. The surest sign that an athlete is an icon is that Belgian novelists become interested in their melancholy. Famous belletristic writers don't write poignantly intense belletristic essays about athletes all that often, with the obvious exception of George R.R. Martin's blogs about the Jets. Zidane's melancholy opens with the following description of the scene before the match. Zidane watched the Berlin sky, not thinking of anything, a white sky flecked with gray clouds lined with blue, one of those windy skies, immense and changing, of the Flemish painters. Zidane watched the Berlin sky over the Olympic Stadium on the evening of 9 July 2006 and felt the sensation, with poignant intensity, of being there, simply there, in Berlin's Olympic Stadium, at this precise moment in time, on the evening of the World Cup final. Award-winning Belgian novelists, like midfielders hips, sometimes make shit up. Again, France is playing Italy, the most dominant defensive team in the tournament, a team that's conceded only one goal in its run to the final, and that was an own goal against the United States. No one can score on them. They have to do it themselves. On the pitch, at the same time in this final, we have Andrea Pirlo, Francesco Totti, Luca Toni, Genero Gattuso, Fabio Cannavaro, Gianluigi Buffon, Zidane, Taram, Henri, Vieira, Claude McAlealy. Good lord. Opening whistle. Here we go. I remember this World Cup so well. It, it felt, for an event that was supposed to be a celebration, it felt bad-tempered, contentious. It felt like the universe was in a mood. There was a whole slew of ongoing scandals involving FIFA and the integrity of the game. There was a record number of yellow and red cards. This was also the tournament in which Graham Pohl, the English referee, gave a Croatian player three yellow cards in one game. Incredible accomplishment. And heading into the final, 
I don't know. The day felt heavy. Everything seemed a little too serious, a little too important. Anyway, Italy has this defender called Marco Materazzi, sort of a professional asshole. Big physical center back who loves to get under people's skin, the sort of pest who leaves bruises. If you watched the final, maybe you remember Materazzi. He played a pivotal role. Hmm, what was it? Sixth minute of the match, Materazzi brings down Florent Maluda in the area. Penalty to France. Was that Materazzi's pivotal contribution? Well, stay tuned. Here we go. Less than 10 minutes into the game, France's number one penalty taker, Zinedine Zidane, steps up to the line with the chance to become the first non-Italian to score against Italy at this World Cup. Referee blows the whistle. Zidane stares down at the ball. The Zidane stare is on full blast. If the sky is a Flemish painting, the Zidane stare is a heat gun someone is aiming directly at the canvas. The ball turns orange and starts smoking. Basically, he takes a quick, confident step forward. The Italian goalkeeper, Gianluigi Buffon, one of the best who ever did it, starts to dive to his right and then checks himself at the last possible instant, either seeing or sensing correctly that Zidane is going to shoot down the middle. But he doesn't quite guess right, Buffon, because what Zidane does now is one of the most audacious things any soccer player has ever done. As Buffon falls to the ground in preparation for blocking a low, hard shot into the net, Zidane doinks the ball up into the air. He hits a chip shot at the crossbar, and the ball smacks against the crossbar. It bounces down toward the ground. The spin carries it off the underside of the crossbar and onto the grass. It bounces once, about two inches inside the goal line, and then bounces forward out of the goal, never touches the back of the net. Zinedine Zidane has just scored a Panenka in a World Cup final. I'm going to try to explain why I think this is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in the tournament. Because it's not obviously beautiful, is it? It's a silly shot. Maybe the silliest shot in the game, actually. It's not a goal in keeping with the force of the Zidane stare. It's not in keeping with the profundity of Zidane's significance or the stakes of the moment or the mood of the day. 
Antonin Paninka, by the way, was a Czech midfielder in the 70s, pioneered that little doink down the middle penalty. He scored one in the final of Euro 1976 to win the match for Czechoslovakia against West Germany. He said he considered himself an entertainer and wanted to score a goal that would amuse the crowd. It's just such a surprising thing for a player to try in that moment. A soft shot right down the middle. It's a shot so fundamentally ludicrous that in Italy, it's nicknamed Il Cuccio, the spoon. Spoons, the most inherently comical utensils. There's nothing dramatic about the spoon. Imagine if, like, the plot of Game of Thrones had turned on spoon-to-spoon combat. Would have been an improvement, frankly. Do not at me. That's a Penny Hardaway reference. What is so beautiful about this goal, what I love about it so much, what makes it one of my very favorite goals, it's that it felt free. In this match where everything felt so weighty, in this career where everything felt so dramatically supercharged, Zidane stepped up to the line and gave us this little moment of lightness, of surprise. When reality is heavy enough, lightness can be transcendent. And this, well, liberty, equality, fraternity, this was liberté. The Panenka showed us a genius neatly skipping out of all the boxes we'd put him in, proving there was something in him beyond our power to define. And in that process, showing us something new that the World Cup can be. This is the story of the World Cup, right? Zidane and his teammates had already shown that the World Cup can be a venue for the negotiation of national identity. Now he showed us that the World Cup can also be a venue for something more elusive and more defiant in a way. It can be a place for the exhilarating refusal of expectations. It can be a place where, for a few glorious seconds, you really don't have a message. It can be a place where Zinedine Zidane can score a cheeky goal that's just a cheeky goal. And that, man, can I just, like, do some unhappy sighing for a second? Because (sighs) that should be the end of this podcast. Zidane's penalty should be the moment everyone remembers from this match. Literary Belgians should be writing essays called Zidane's Mischief, not Zidane's Melancholy. But that obviously, is not the lasting image of the 2006 World Cup final. 19th minute, Andrea Pirlo takes a corner kick for Italy. Never a sentence you want to hear if you're not on Pirlo's team. Marco Materazzi scores with a header. We're tied 1-1. Surely the biggest contribution Marco Materazzi will make in the match. Except it isn't, because in extra time, in the 104th minute, 
Zidane has a chance to win the match for France. He's unmarked in the middle of the area, hits a hard header at goal. The perfect ending to his career, the storybook ending, is wide open right in front of him. But Buffon, the Italian goalkeeper, the guy Zidane beat with the Panenka, gets his revenge. Buffon is denied him with a brilliant save. He makes a desperate leap and blocks the shot. Six minutes later, Matarazzi says something to Zidane. They're jogging down the pitch side by side, Matarazzi kind of tugging on Zidane's shirt, just drawing a little bit. Zidane separates himself, gets a few feet ahead of Matarazzi, then turns back and headbutts him hard in the chest. Well, there's Zinazine Zidane. Oh, and he, well, well, he, he's just headed Matarazzi in the middle of the chest. Surely if the referee had seen that, Zidane would have been off, and what had gone on before then to provoke Zidane to do that? In a fight between two evenly matched opponents, the less angry person wins. What Matarazzi said has been the subject of intense debate and speculation and competing and inconsistent accounts from both players. British tabloids hired lip readers in the aftermath of the event to decode the provocation. I'm sure it could be worse, but I can't see how. There was a theory for a while that Matarazzi called him a terrorist. Zidane has said Matarazzi insulted his mother and his sister. Remember his sister who gave him the Walkman when he was homesick? Matarazzi says, I didn't bring up his mother, but the sister, yeah, I did insult her. It doesn't really matter, and I don't really want to talk about it. What matters, I think, is this. We are not a family of words. Everything passes through the look, and when the look isn't enough, we act. The stakes are so high. The danger is so real. When you go out, you go out together. You learn to look out for yourself, and you look out for the siblings smaller than you. It's as if the universe is taking revenge for the freedom of the Panenka. Zidane's career ends with a red card. He's sent off. It's going to be a red card, and it is a red card for Zidane. Zinedine Zidane's career ends with being sent off in the World Cup final. The Jules Rimet trophy, which goes to the World Cup winner, has already been brought out. It's sitting on a little white podium. He has to walk right past it, does not give it a single glance, which is probably fortunate because a glance from Zidane at that moment would have reduced that trophy to ore. He's back on the wrong side of the line, on the outside looking in. And look, he's fine. France, without him, loses on penalties 5-3 at the end of extra time. Millions of words are written and spoken about the meaning of the action. All over the world, it's subjected to a degree of interpretation that makes the Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars discourse look like a quaint local dispute. But he's fine. He's still named the best player of the tournament. He's gone into management more recently, two separate stints at Real Madrid, and he's great at it, of course. He's won the Champions League and La Liga. Eyebrows get more commanding all the time. He's fine. 
But the headbutt is what everyone remembers from that match, maybe from his entire career. And all I want to say about that is that it's too bad. It's too bad. The headbutt became iconic, no question. But the goal? The goal was something better than iconic. It was human. It was a moment when Zidane was nothing more and nothing less than himself. This is 22 Goals, the story of the World Cup, written by me, Brian Phillips. The executive producers of 22 Goals are Chris Ryan, Juliet Littman, and Sean Fennessy. Our story editor is Connor Nevins, and the show was produced by Devin Ronaldo, Mike Wargon, and Vikram Patel. Copy editing by Jacqueline Cantor. Jacqueline taught me something really interesting this week. Apparently, the AP Style Guide frowns on using triple negatives, even when you're talking about Tottenham Hotspur. So that's going to change my whole approach to writing. Thank you, Jacqueline, for that. Fact-checking by Kellen B. Coates. The sound design in this episode is by Devin Ronaldo, who also composed the theme song and many of the music tracks. We also used some music from Epidemic Sound. Additional mixing by Scott Somerville. Art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker. Thanks for listening. Okay, let's see. So I'm just scrolling Google Maps around the Arc de Triomphe to see what other stores would have had to deal with the Zidane stare. Okay, let's see. Oh, yeah. Chanel. More like Chanel number five million pieces your store would be in after Zidane looked at you. Hermes. Well, it's expensive for a smoking crater, but the handwork is unparalleled. Christian Dior, I'll see you in hell. Whoa, wait, there's a Five Guys on the Champs-Élysées? Five Guys can stay. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, 
file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.